while you're sitting down, if you'd reach and grab your Bible. We're going to get most of chapter 10 tonight, and I'll give you a little bit of preview for the next week. Next week as we gather together, there's an interesting thing, rather like the book of Numbers here in the book of Joshua, and there are two chapters that follow chapter 10. Actually, it begins in about the, the end of chapter 10. Uh, there begins to be this record of all of the battles that the children of Israel undertook, and we're going to try and take that all at once next week because it belongs together. It's historical. But tonight, oh, what a tangled web we weave. Most of you know the rest of that. When at first we do attempt to deceive, it, there, there is a, a thing in the human nature that is prevalent in virtually all of us, and that is... When we get caught in something, we have a tendency to make it worse uh, by making additional absurd decisions. And we saw last time that the chief cause of that was the lack of prayer uh, in the leadership of the children of Israel. They just kept acting impulsively and doing very strange and weird things. And so, you know, as you as you sit uh, in in this house of God tonight, and of course I just showed you the last slide, so I'm going to flip all the way back through and get back to the first one. So, when you when you think about this passage of Scripture, how many of you and go back to your childhood have ever gotten involved with maybe a group of people doing something to where you ended up suffering a consequence because of who you chose to allow in your company? Raise your hand. That's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> leg up yeah it's a, it's human nature it's like we get we see something that someone else is doing and it's just like well that looks like fun we'll just engage in that and before you know it you end up having to make arrangements with this enemy that is really not a friend of yours it's somebody that you know you kind of had a casual acquaintance with and all of a sudden you have to defend them uh, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to stories. Well, you know, I was at this party, and then, you know, and then Officer Friendly came and arrested everybody, and you're sitting there having to defend the people that were doing the wrong thing because you're in with the wrong crowd. That is very similar to what's happening with the children of Israel in the rest of this chapter that we're going to look at tonight, the first 28 verses. They have made an allegiance with the Gibeonites. And now the Gibeonites are going to get them into a situation that they shouldn't be in because they've made friends with the Gibeonites. So now they're going to have to go and defend the Gibeonites. It's a death blow to us as Christians very often to our walks when we get entangled in the affairs of the world, just as Second Timothy chapter 2 tells us. When we get entangled in the affairs of the world, when we make allegiances and alliances with people that we should not be in allegiance with, when we do exactly what your Bible says not to do there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what has light to do with darkness? What has Believing to do with unbelieving, with lawlessness and righteousness, with gods and idols. Those things are they're polar opposites. They don't belong together. And every time you get engaged closely with the things of this world, you're probably going to live long enough to have to defend your actions. And you are probably going to pay a price 
for that association. And that price may be a whole lot higher than you want to pay. And so that is the picture uh, in tonight's passage. We're supposed to remain separate from the world. And I want to really encourage you, this does not mean that we don't go out and hang out with people that are unbelievers. We must do that. You can't win someone to Christ if you're never around somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Amen? So it's not saying don't go out and be in this world. It's saying don't be of this world. It's don't get entangled in this world. You you shouldn't have a non-Christian business partner. You for sure, as a Christian who knows the Lord, shouldn't even contemplate dating a non-Christian. Don't do it. You definitely should not marry a non-Christian. You're asking for trouble. Doesn't mean that person's evil. You got two different gods you're serving. You're going different directions. You shouldn't be hanging around people and getting engaged in their lifestyle when it's not your lifestyle. You see the difference? It's one thing to go fishing with somebody. It's another thing to say, hey, how about we go on a date? It's one thing to go watch a ball game with somebody. Then to say, you know, why don't we plan a family vacation together? We have to be careful about our associations. Because if we don't, we're going to end up just like the children of Israel here in chapter 10. Be careful with your associations. Make sure that you're able to stay separate. If you can stay separate, if you can stay holy, if you can stay unscathed, then you're okay in that relationship. But if you are forced in that relationship to entertain the very evil which God says you should not, then you're in the wrong place. Don't go there. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you would work in us to will and to do and to accomplish your good pleasure tonight. We thank you for the power of it. We pray that you'd speak to us through the power of your word. And so, Lord, we pray that you would now do what you wish to do as you instruct us from heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we stay untangled, as we stay disassociated in that deep way, in fact, Paul put it this way, he says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself in the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him or her. In other words, you're a soldier in the Lord's army. The Lord calls the shots. What he says, you need to be available to do. You can't be AWOL all the time with the world. You need to be hanging out with the Lord, as it were. I had a funny thing happen to me one time. As you all know, I was a camp director for 20 years. Uh, you can't imagine how many kids get caught doing some pretty absurd things at Christian camps. And one time we had, well, we had a group of, uh, we, we used to call them uh, paper hangers, uh, also known as, toilet, known as toilet paperers. And they went into the dining hall, and they found an actual case of toilet paper. That would be 150 rolls. That's a lot of TP. It's like 47 miles of toilet paper or something. I don't know. But they decided that they were going to decorate for us. And it began as something simple, just in the dining hall. They thought they'd do the trusses and the rafters and kind of see where it would hang and the animals and all that kind of stuff. It, it moved outside. Uh, well, well, that night they weren't expecting the rainstorm. 
And so it kind of drizzled. And if you've ever seen toilet paper after a rain, it's a very pleasant sight. Uh, it looks lovely. And it's about as hard to pick up as, as jello that's been put on a Teflon plate. You can't catch it. You can't find it. You can't get it. It's just everywhere. And so we caught two of the people that did it in the act. And so they were in my office, and they began to squeal like little tiny hogs. <laughs> and before you know it, I've got like half the camp outside my office all listening through. You know, and I, I'm, I'm, of course, you know, trying to be diplomatic about it. And it's just like, well, what possessed you to do it? And you know what the common answer was? I didn't want to seem like I wasn't part of the group. I, 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 my whole dorm, you know, it's the old, well, if they jumped off a bridge, would you jump off? It was like that times a thousand. And it started with one guy having a bad idea who was not even a believer. And he's like, well, you know, we got to get back at these camp guys because, you know, they, they told us we couldn't dive off the blob tower into the lake. It's 18 feet and the water's only nine feet deep. You're going to kill yourself. So, so this is an example of how a whole bunch of innocent people end up in trouble. We sent 27 kids home. Said, look, got to make an exist just can't happen. And a vast majority of the people that went home, because that's what their youth pastor wanted to do, had their parents come up from San Diego. And I can tell you when dad drives at 2 o'clock in the morning to come get their kids from San Diego... When they get there, they're not singing happy days are here again. <laughs> Belts are coming off as you're like, I'll kill you. I'm going to die right here, right now. All because of the association with a group of people that determined to do something that was stupid. How many Christians do that? How many Christians end up in some situation in their life? Verse 1 here in chapter 10 of the book of Joshua. Now it came to pass that when Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and he had also done to Ai and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon uh, had made peace with Israel and were among them, that he greatly feared, because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all of its men were mighty. And therefore, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, his name means Lord of Righteousness, by the way, uh, sent to, to Hoham, the king of Hebron, and Piram, the king of Jarmoth, and Japhia, the king of Lachish, and Debir, the king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, that we may attack Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. So you get the picture. Here's a guy that's heard the story. Now he's calling all of his neighbors, look, we've got to come against the Gibeonites who have just been given sanctuary by Israel, right? So they're now Israel's friends. So there's going to be a battle against Gibeon. So guess what Israel is sworn to do? They've got to protect them. So now they're going to end up in a war that they shouldn't have ended up in. Good news here. comes a little bit later. God's going to still use it for good. But they end up in this battle that they shouldn't have been in. Come up to me and help me. 
that we may attack Gibeon, for it's made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. And therefore the five kings of the Amorites, so these are all the major Amorite cities, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmoth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered together and went up, they and all their armies, and they camped before Gibeon, and they made war against it. So here in the north, if you look at Israel today, uh, Gibeon is is about 17 miles south of south and slightly west of Gilgal, so it's really in the area almost of the Valley of Megiddo. And so here's this this hilltop city. It's a fortified city, and, and so here here these people are all gathering together in a place where they think they can defeat the Israelites. And this confederation of army is now the armies is assembled, and, and they're going to come after the children of Israel. And so the king calls out all these armies. And now, so instead of having to defeat them one at a time, pretty easy task for the children of Israel, right? They're going to have five kings all gathered together with the king of Jerusalem. So it's going to be a much bigger battle. There's a little secret there. When you make peace with the enemy, when you invite the enemy into your house, you're going to fight larger battles than you would have had to fight before. Things are going to have a higher price. There's going to be a bigger price to pay when you make friends with the world in that way. It's dangerous. It has greater consequences. So God was now going to have to, uh, instead of conquer them one at a time, he's going to have to help conquer them all at once. And we have to remember in, in all of this that God's still sovereign. And I love this part about it because it's going to turn out okay but it was a much bigger deal than it needed to be. And in fact, we don't really know how it would have turned out if they hadn't have made peace with the Gibeonites and brought them in and said, hey, you can serve with us and do all those kind of things. Perhaps they would have been able to do this a much, much easier way. And so God can use our blunders. And it's, for, for me, I'm really thankful of that part. Amen? I don't even know how many blunders God's fixed that I've you know, really messed things up. And God comes along and has a plan to fix it. So mistakes, frankly, are embarrassing, aren't they? Most people, are you embarrassed by your I usually am. I'm not very, I don't list my mistakes and go, look at my great achievements. We're usually embarrassed by our mistakes. You know, but the good news is, is even though we make mistakes, God can use those mistakes for his good purposes. Remember what Romans 8.28 says, amen? For all things work together not because they're good, but for or towards the good. For those who love God and are the called according to His purposes. In other words, in an eternal perspective, God can even use our mistakes to work out for the good. Not that the thing will be good, but what it does in our life ultimately can be used towards good in our lives ultimately. And so... Uh, it is important to see that in this initial few verses here. General Eisenhower, right after the Second World War, defined success as the art of making your mistakes when nobody's looking. Now, that's kind of the world's view of it. Better definition would be the art of seeing victory where other people see defeat. That's who we are in Christ. We, we, we work from the victory. Christ has won that. So verse 6 goes on, and we now see the call uh, to, to Joshua made by the Gibeonites. 
They know they're headed for destruction. Then the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua and at the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not forsake your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all of the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the mountains have gathered together against us. So they're now using this peace treaty that's been made because the Gibeonites knew exactly what God's word says and they duped Joshua into a peace treaty which should not have been made. And so now they actually have the ability to say, hey, look, you guys made us your buds. you got to come up here and fight a war now because of it. Picture of what happens to us. You want to limit the, the amount of warfare you're engaged in? Don't get entangled with the world. Stay out of that entanglement. And so Joshua ascended from Gilgal. If you look on a map, even though Gilgal is slightly north and Gibeon is slightly south, it's also quite up. You have one that's closer to the valley floor of the Jordan Valley, and you have the other that's up on the ridge top that's kind of almost elevated like Mount Carmel is. And so they travel up to Gil- from Gilgal. And he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And so they're, they're pulling out all the stops. They realize, look, uh, the Gibeonites have cried out. And there's kind of a picture here that the Gibeonites actually realize who's, who's going to win, which is kind of a good part of the story. They realize that the Jewish people have the favor of God. That's a good thing. At least their witness has been such that the world looked at them and said, hey, these guys have something going for them. We want that to be the case with us. But it's also sad when the world is a better example of calling on the Lord than we are. Look what they do. They call on God's people to come and defend them. Sometimes we don't even call on God's people. We call on the resources of the world. Be careful that you're calling on the Lord in these these situations that we face. When the Gibeonites find themselves in danger, they believe the promises of God. They believe Joshua's promise what God's people need to do. It's what we need to do when we find ourselves in the battles of life. We need to call on the people of God. Can I share something with you that's just kind of a real, uh, it's a a personal trouble for me? One of the most common things that people do when they end up in trouble is they abandon the body of Christ. They stop coming to church. They abandon their Christian friends. They do not call people and have them pray for them. They withdraw into their own little circle of friends, and they try and work it all out because they're embarrassed they made a mistake. That is dumb as hot rocks from a spiritual perspective, okay? That is the last thing you want to do. What you want to do is admit your mistakes and you want to call on the name of the Lord and you want to call on the people of the Lord and you want to have God's people pray for you and get engaged in the battle with you. You do not want to cut yourself off from the very help that the body of Christ is supposed to be. I see so much damage in people's lives because, you know, they did something dumb, they get embarrassed by it, and they flee the help that is the Lord. Because he is our very present help in time of trouble. Amen? That's what his word says. He is your fortress. He is your strong tower. He is the mighty one in whom you can trust. And that's what God's people represent in the way that we pray, in the way that we act, in the resources we bring to bear. That's who we are. Don't cut yourself off from that. Run to it. These heathens knew that. We need to know that. 
next thing that we see is Joshua's call to the Lord. Now remember, this was something he did not do the last time. So he's starting to get it, okay? And so when he goes into battle against all the other cities, it's going to pretty much be a slaughter from here on out. That's why we're going to cover so much scripture next week. It's a very exciting time, but it's very repetitious. And so we're going to look at these as a historical whole. And we'll just say, look, this is the land of Israel. I'm going to put you a map up there. You'll get to see all these places. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have delivered them into your hand, and not a man of them shall stand before you. Now it's very easy to see that Joshua and the Lord had a tight relationship. That there was communication going back and forth. And the Lord now is, looks like, and it appears from the Hebrew language, that this is actually an answer to a prayer. There's a little subtlety, and the Lord said, It's a reply. It's not just an out-of-the-blue statement. Joshua has finally said, Hey, Lord, help! We need you to help us. And Joshua therefore came upon them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal. And so the Lord routed them before Israel and killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them all along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Ascah, and Macdeca. You, you see, the Lord, when He's in it, when He does what He can do, you are invincible if you're walking in the middle of His will. If you're not walking in the middle of His will, then you have your resources to trust in. That's going to cause you a lot of fear. Because when I think about the big decisions of life, the things that go on uh, for me, for us as a church, for us in this world, for our government, all those kind of things, if I'm thinking about it from the perspective of Jeff, it's like, oh, we're dead. Not good. But when I think about it from the perspective of an almighty God with unlimited resources, unlimited knowledge, unlimited power, someone who has a heart that wants to accomplish his will in my life, very different thought process goes on in my mind. I all of a sudden see a big God and a little problem. If I do it the other way, I see a big problem and a little God. You want to have a big God. You don't want to see every battle that you go into as, I hope we win. You want to see it as, I wonder how God's going to do this. That's the type of faith we as the body of Christ are supposed to have. And I'm going to get to that a little bit later. You you see as he continues now, as Joshua likely repeating these things to a scribe later and having them written down, and it happened as they fled before Israel that they were on the descent of Beth Horon, and the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Ascah, and they died. And there more who died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. You get the picture? You see, what man couldn't do, God could do. What man was powerless to accomplish, God accomplished. And it actually appears that the children of Israel had fought this battle and they're now at least regrouping, if not retreating a little bit, and God's still wiping out their enemy. He does something miraculous. 
And then Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still over Gibeon. And I'm going to share a couple of things with you in a moment. But I want to preface this. I believe in a God who does miracles. I believe in a God who does miracles. And the reason I'm telling you that is I don't need a scientific explanation for everything the Bible says. I believe in a God who does miracles. I believe God can do whatever he wants with the laws of physics. I believe that God is the author of the control system that is our marvelously fine-tuned universe. I believe that he created gravity. I believe that he created star systems that we call galaxies. I believe that he invented uh, those gravitational forces and those nuclear forces which hold uh, matter together. But outside of that, my Bible says that in him all things consist. So I have no problem with taking things at face value when God just simply says he does stuff. Sun, sand still over Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And so the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had revenge upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? And that book of Jasher is a lost book. It doesn't exist. No one has a copy of it. We don't know what it says. But it appears that there is a quotation here from that book. And so God is simply saying, look, there's a commonly circulated piece of literature that you know about, and it says that God can do these things. And so it appears that what the Lord has done is do what the Lord always does, and that's he does things we don't understand. I don't understand how he stretches dollars sometimes. Amen? The bills get paid. I don't know how he does that. That's just as miraculous, quite frankly, sometimes as if the sun stood still to me. It's like, okay, Lord, you just made one dollar become ten somehow. I've seen the result of the Lord with my own eyes of God healing people. People who should have been dead a long time ago still walk on this earth. I've seen it happen. So I know he does it. Can't explain it. The doctors can't explain it. I've had doctors look at me. All right, it was a miracle. I've had surgeons look at me. I, we don't even know where that lump went to. It was here when we did the MRI originally, but it's gone now. We can't. There's nothing to take out. Don't know where it went. I've seen God do those things. And so the people are able to take revenge upon their enemies. And so the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. Notice it does not say a full 24-hour period. It says for about a whole day. It's speaking of the time that we call daylight hours. It's not speaking for a full rotation of the sun. So there is a specific period of time that God is doing something unique that he has not done since. And he's going to say that. For there has been no day like that before it, after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of man. So you can see this is an answer directly to prayer. The Lord heeded the voice of man, likely Joshua's prayer. Because, Lord, I don't know how we're going to do this. There's five kings and their armies up there in that city. 
We don't have a chance against them, and unless you are for us, we can't do this. And so they call upon the Lord, and the Lord does what only God can do to assure the victory. For the Lord fought for Israel, and Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. There are three factors here I want to look at, three things that we can glean uh, from these verses. And there are these. First thing we see is believing the promises of God. Had not God said since chapter 1, Be strong, be very strong, be courageous, for the Lord thy God is with thee. Isn't that what God said at the beginning of the book? He said, look, I'm with you. You're going to cross over the Jordan. You're going to take Jericho. You kind of biffed it at AI, but I'm even going to clean up that mess. I am with you. You go if I tell you to go. Because it's not you that's winning the battles, it's me that's winning the battles. That's why it's such an appalling thing when the church takes credit for what God does. Or when man takes credit for what God does. What happens here is because of God. It's not because of Jeff. It's not because we're a Calvary Chapel. Love to be a Calvary Chapel, by the way. Wouldn't be anything else. I love being a pastor. Wouldn't be anything else. But what happens here is because of God. It's because of the price that was paid at Calvary's cross through Jesus Christ the Son. It's because of the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in this world. And it's because God the Father's plan. It's the work of the Trinity. That's what's happening here. It's not Jeff. It's not some grand plan. It's the plans of God. So there's the promise. There's also, and people often forget this, because some Christians have the mistaken belief that you just kind of put your fingers in your ears, you close your eyes, you kind of do the, you know, the hear no evil, see no evil, you know, speak no evil thing. I just won't do anything. I'll sit here and God will just take care of it. That's not exactly accurate. Because faith is born out in works. If I truly believe what God is doing and I believe what God is saying, then I get busy with my part and I take his divine strategy and I go do whatever I can do to engage with God in the plans that he's made. So there is a divine strategy that we're going to see here. It's a sound one, by the way. And and then the third thing is call on the Lord. Talk to God through the process. So very many Christians, maybe they hear the initial word from the Lord, and maybe they kind of get engaged in it, and then they try and finish it exactly as Zechariah said not to do, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And a lot of Christians try and finish what God has begun in the flesh. And that doesn't work. So there has to be the Spirit of God working through the whole thing as we join God in what he's doing with a divine plan and the whole time make sure you're seeking the Lord. Because he may want to do a little adjustment. He may change things up midstream. God's God. He can do whatever he wants. Amen? So we need to be open to that. A lot of Christians get so set in their ways, it's like if God should speak to them, and I've seen this happen so many times, especially with young people wanting to go into the mission field. They'll hear from the Lord, and they'll be going a certain direction, and they'll stop speaking to God. And what God is really trying to do is pry their hands off of maybe mom and dad, maybe get them out of a specific town and send them a specific direction. Then he wants to keep speaking to them, and maybe ultimately he's trying to get them over here, but they get kind of stubborn. I call it spiritual stubbornness. 
It's like, I heard from the Lord, so I'm going to keep right on going. Even every single thing is going against me. And it's very clear that God is not blessing that current course of action. And he's trying to move that person. But I heard, so I'm going to keep going. That's kind of a foolish way to act at times. We need to be open to let God do course corrections, is the picture there. Doesn't mean that sometimes it isn't a real battle to get to point B. But sometimes God's actually saying, look, I got you out of here. I headed you this way so I can send you that way. You need to be listening the whole time. Don't get so set in your ways that you think you know everything that God's going to do. It's a very serious problem with the church. And people kind of just get really rigid. They stand there. It's like, I'm going to keep going this way. And I know it's not working. Yes, the church is down to three people, but we're really, really, really righteous. We're awesome. God wants to do a different work, you know. You just end up with this kind of cultural club of really legalistic people. First, the promise. Joshua's actions illustrate a couple of things for us here. That Romans 14 passage, Romans 10, 17 passage out on those signs in the lobby. You, you see, whatever is not of faith is sin. To us as believers, we actually have a choice between faith and not faith. Notice I didn't use the word works. Because faith can also instigate and actually speed along work. So it's not a matter of works. It's faithlessness. It's having faith or not having faith. It's faith or the absence of faith that's in view there. Whatever is not of faith is sin. If there's no element of faith in it to us who believe in the Lord, then it by default becomes sinful to us. Because we're not inquiring of the Lord. The Lord's not empowering it. It just has nothing to do with God. So to us, that's missing God's mark. That's what sin is, by the way. And the second thing is that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is what increases my faith, folks. When I read what happens to Joshua, when I see what happens to the children of Israel, when I read the epistles of Paul, when I, when I read the Psalms and realize, you know what, man, there isn't anything I've ever gone through that David didn't go through. When I read the book of Job and realize, no matter how righteous I am, I might actually have to go through some horrific trials in my life, and they happen. When I read the book of Jonah and I see somebody who's about as dense as a brick that actually it all works out in the end, you see, I believe God and I believe that faith is real because I'm taking in the word of God and I know that it's worked in times past, it works in the present, and it will work in the future always. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Whenever we believe the promise of God, we obey his commands and we act by faith. That's, that's what happens. That's why when people tell me, well, well, I'm a Christian, but I never do anything that results in someone actually understanding that I might be saved. That's not real faith. If someone can say, I, I want to be a Christian and keep my sinful lifestyle, that person has a tough time with what the Bible says. So I say to them, how do you actually know you're a child of God? How do you know that you're saved? Because there's nothing in your life that repeats the things that God is. There's no character of Christ. That's what a Christian is. So the little Christ, it's someone who looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, talks like Jesus, walks like Jesus, works like Jesus. You see, when we act by faith, we can expect God's help. If we act in our flesh, I wouldn't count on God helping you with that. Probably not going to happen. 
So the Jews didn't have to be afraid because they were walking in that victory that they had been promised. They said, look, God said it. We believe it. That settles it. Amen? Anybody got that old bumper sticker? I had one of those. God said it. God settles it. I believe it. It's good. It's all good to go. You see, God's promises will be fulfilled because as the book of 1 Kings tells us there in chapter 8, not one word of his good promise will fail. What he says about his promises, not one word. So God's promised it, you can count on it. So we believe the promises of God. A second thing that you can see here is what I like to call the strategy. Faith apart from works is dead, amen? I think that's what the book of James says. So it means that we want to be looking for God's wisdom. That means in all of your ways, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Amen? Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will guide and direct your paths. It doesn't say if you do things your way that he's going to bless whatever you do, does it? That's because that's not faith. Faith is believing God's promises and engaging yourself in seeing that those promises are fulfilled. It's not making up your own rules as you go. It's not making up your own lifestyle as you go. It's not doing whatever you feel like you want to do and then, well, of course God's going to bless it because I tell people I'm a Christian. I've seen people enter into just horrible business agreements, things that are downright illegal, and say because they got a fish on their business card that it's all going to be blessed by God. He doesn't do that because he doesn't bless sin. He blesses works that are works of faith. And so in this case, God takes out his special ammunition, which happened to be these hailstones, and he starts thumping the, the enemy soldiers. Why? Because the children of Israel, in their own strength, had set out to say, look, we trust you, God. We're going to go against this invincible army with what we have because you said we can. That's a work of faith. That's saying, God, you said it. I believe it. We're going to do it. It's up to you to secure the victory. Now, it's pretty clear that in their own abilities, that didn't get accomplished. It took God interceding for them. We need to not leave that out of the equation of our lives. That's what walking by faith is. That's saying, look, God, this is a little too big for me. It's something if you want to get it done, I'm going to start going the direction you've told me to go, and I'm going to go as far as I can go, and you need to empower me to get the rest of it done if that's what your plan is. You see, the strategy is to get going and then let God do the work. That's faith that works. It's exactly what James was getting at. You know, God has control over the entire universe, amen? So if you need extra stuff, God's got it. You know, it's like sometimes we'll, you know, like we do camping trips and whatever, and somebody will ask, you know, well, you got a spare backpack? Yeah, come down to our garage. Well, yeah, we've been backpacking for, I've been backpacking for almost my entire life since I was 10. So I have a lot of equipment in my garage. Now imagine infinitely greater that God has every piece of equipment that you will ever need. Every resource that you will ever need, every amount of money, every bit of wisdom, every bit of knowledge, every bit of understanding that you will ever need. And he delights to give good gifts to his children, as his word says. He says, look, you can't do it, but I can. Let me help you with this. In this case, it took some hailstones. And the interesting thing is, did you notice in this passage, they only hit the enemy soldiers? Any of you ever been in a radical hailstorm? 
I've been in one of those hailstorms to where cars get dented and windows get knocked out and that type of thing. They don't just fall like in one little tiny area. I've seen cars that, you know, after they get done, they're just completely wrinkled because they're absolutely obliterated. Every square inch of the body is just damaged. But in this case, giant hailstones falling from heaven, and they're only thumping the enemy soldiers. I would kind of give that one to God. I'm pretty sure that that was the Lord directing hailstones. Now, we look at it and go, oh, you know. And then you have all the meteorologists in the world. Well, that can't happen. And, you know, and Johnny Mountain said. I don't care what Johnny Mountain says. He's, he's a doofus that's had too much suntan. He's had so many facelifts like his cheeks are behind his ears. I'm not worried about what Johnny Mountain thinks about the meteorological possibility of giant hailstones killing individual people. I don't care. I trust what God's word says. I believe the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were absolutely obliterated by fire. I I believe that burning pitch, I don't need to know where the pitch bubbled up from. I believe it happened. It's that simple. I don't know how it happened. And so the third thing that we're going to see is that God simply responded to a powerful prayer. Miracle of the hailstorm was absolutely wonderful. Of course, it it proved what God was able to do. And you can kind of see in these stories, uh, when God's people obey God's will, everything in the universe works out for you, okay? That's what happens when God's people believe God's will and engage in accomplishing God's will, God's plans, God's purposes, God's way. Get it? God's plans, God's purposes, God's way. Not man's plans, God's way. God's plans, God's purposes, God's way. Really important that you get all those pieces together because sometimes we can kind of get half of it right. Well, I'm praying, but I'm actually praying for God to do something that God's word says he's not going to do. Like like bless this relationship I'm in with an unbeliever. He's not going to do that. He's not. That person doesn't know Jesus. You need to find a new boyfriend or girlfriend and ask God to change their heart. And then you come back to that person once they get saved. But for sure, don't get engaged to them. God's not going to fix that. You're going to probably suffer with that consequence. And so the third thing, powerful prayer, miracle of the hailstorm, uh, nothing compared to the miracle of extending a day. Amen? And I want to talk about this for just a moment. No doubt these men are weary. They've gone up. They've fought the battle. Uh, there ain't enough hours in a day. You know that slogan. Amen? I use that all the time. There just aren't enough hours in a day. It's like, okay, did this counseling appointment, talk to this person, did these Bible studies, prepared PowerPoint, did whatever. There are not enough hours in the day. Well, in this case, that was exactly the case. There were not enough hours in the day. There was still fighting to be done. And so God does something that his word says he only did once. Hasn't happened since. Won't happen again. That's what God's word says. Only a one-time event. It's the miracle that we know is Joshua's long day. And I want to just really just say to you, that you need to be careful what stories you pass along as fact or as truth. And there has been an urban myth circulating for a very long time, and in fact it actually started in the late 1900s uh, with, with a book that was written at that time. 
But the story that has been circulated of late is that NASA has found these missing minutes in some calculations that they'd done regarding the spatial alignments of all the planets and those types of things. And so the most common version of this is that NASA scientists were doing some advanced calculations trying to get the determining the positions of the sun, the planets, the stars. And in completing those calculations, they found out that there was a day missing. And then the story goes on that the team was totally frustrated. There was some Christian that was in the group, and that Christian prayed, and he said, oh, there's a passage in the Bible. Actually, there's two passages in the Bible, one in Joshua chapter 10 and one in 2 Kings chapter 20. And I think it says there that God made a longer day so that there was time missing. It's a complete myth. And yet people pass it around as truth. And it makes us look like a bunch of dopes. It didn't happen and it can't happen. It was a miracle. NASA can't prove anything of the sort in dealing with those types of calculations. Here's why. It would have taken a ground-based atomic clock that existed from day one, keeping track of every nanosecond that occurred from the beginning of time in order to properly position all of the planets to account for time which was created in the beginning. It can't happen. And it did not happen. God simply did a miracle. So be careful what stories you pass around. Because not only has NASA debunked it, but almost every Christian scientist on the face of the earth, there's a whole article you can read it on Answers in Genesis, written by a guy with a couple of PhDs, that said, it was never said. It was never done. NASA never did these tests. There was never any study of the kind. And so every time it gets repeated, somebody goes to Snopes or Fact or Fiction or one of those websites and they type it in. They go, that pastor was a dope. He's trying to make it seem like there's some special knowledge there that proves the Bible to be true. We have to be careful. So here's what I think. In in order to find some missing stuff at all, you'd have to have an awful accurate earth-based clock to track all of this from day one, whenever that was. So, I go back to what I said when I started the study. I believe God simply does miracles. Now let me explain something to you that's a whole lot more plausible. If you happen to be, say, in Norway right now, does anybody happen to know what time the sun goes down? About 2.30 in the morning. The sun's up for about 20 or so hours in, in those latitudes. So we've had long days <laughs> since the beginning of time, depending on which part of the planet you're on. So what God did to make it come to pass, I can't tell you. But I know we already have long days. We still have long days on the earth, and God is quite capable of doing whatever God wants to do. I just simply simply think that God did a miracle. And whether he rolled back the time, whether he caused some you know, mass hysteria in the minds of people, whether there was a lengthening of the time of day, I don't know how he did it. So don't expect me to tell you how he did it. I can't tell you how he did it. I don't know. And neither does anybody else. But I know God does miracles. And so I just leave it in the miracle category. 
That makes me very happy, and it makes me have to not ever answer for anything dumb that I say. Because I can just say, you know what? God did a miracle. You either believe in miracles or you don't believe in miracles. You know why it's important you believe in miracles? Let me give you a couple. The virgin birth. Miracle? Yeah? You're going to deny that one? You need a scientific explanation for it? Mm, I think you better be really careful. You, you see, that falls in the category of a miracle. How about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? Falls in a category of a miracle. Those are miraculous things. God does miracles. Just trust Him with miracles. That's the way it works in this world. Very vivid illustrations. And so that long day that, that comes here, we need to be very, very careful. God is the God of the miraculous. And so when we try and explain away miracles, what we do is usually back ourselves into a corner. Honest questions? Yeah, of course. We have no explanation for the inspiration of the Bible, just in case you didn't know that. We don't have an explanation for that. But we know that it's inspired because it has information that no other book has ever had. It is, it's written by 66 different authors. It's a period of someplace between 15 and 1800 years. 66 books, 40 different authors, excuse me. We don't know how all that worked together. We don't know why there's, there's synchronicity throughout. Why it doesn't contradict itself. That's a miracle. It's okay to believe in miracles. And so this finishes up with a very long passage that has a central point. And we see that Joshua simply now calls out to the Lord and, and he asks for help. He calls out to his army, but the five kings had fled and hidden themselves at the cave at Machdecca. And then it was told to Joshua saying these five kings had been found hidden in this cave at, at Machdecca. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by them to guard them, guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. Kind of sounds like what they did at Ai the second time. Do not allow them to enter their city, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And then it happened that while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end to the slaying of them, that there was a very great slaughter till they had all finished, and that those who escaped had entered fortified cities. And all of the people returned to the camp, Joshua to Machdecca. And in peace. And no one moved his tongue against the children of Israel. And then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five men, to, those five kings to me. And so they did and brought out the five kings from the mouth of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmoth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And so it was that they brought out those kings to Joshua and Joshua called for the men of Israel. And so now he's going to give them a public ceremony, if you will. And he said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near me and put your feet on the necks of these kings. Can I tell you that when God wins, God wins. Victory is assured. It's total. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be of strong, be of good courage. Remember where he said that? <laughs> All the way back in chapter 1. He said, look, this is, our, this is our rallying cry. This is our battle cry. For thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies against whom you fight. Tell me, God, do you believe that about yourself? What God has promised to do, God is obliged to do. If he said it, it's up to him to keep it. 
And so Joshua gives them the ceremony. He says, put your kings on the next, on the next of the, or put your feet on the next of these kings. And afterward, Joshua struck them and killed them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging on those trees until evening. And remember, the book of Deuteronomy declares that those who are, those who are hanged in a tree are cursed. And so this is a picture. Look, God's curse is upon these people. You can imagine what these people saw who were, you know, maybe allies of these people who were the kings of the lands of the Canaanites, the Gibeonites. And so it was from the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down from trees and cast them against the cave where they'd been hidden, and they laid large stones against the mouth of the cave, which they remained there until that very day. And on the day that Joshua took Machdecha and struck it and its king, they struck them with the edge of the sword. They utterly destroyed them and all the people who were in it, and he let none remain. And so he did to the king of Machdecha as he had done to the king of Jericho. And so the picture is this. What God promises to do, God is obliged to do, and God will do. His officers said, look, these guys are nothing to you. Don't worry about them. Those words filled the hearts of those men. They must have been encouraged. They must have also been warned a little bit. It's like, look, nothing's too hard for our God. The day and the night belong to him, just as Psalm 74 says. If God can't perform the miracles that he describes in this chapter, then I would say to you, God's not God. If he's incapable of of controlling the laws that he put in place, abandoning them for a moment, doing whatever he has to do to make all things right. You know, I've heard some fanciful tales. Well, you know, if God really did that, people would fly off the earth. Not if God's God. Maybe he increased gravitational pull for a time. I don't know. I don't need to know. Because God is God. Let's let him be God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this evening. And pray that you would just bless us, Lord. Bring these spiritual truths into our vision frequently and often. Lord, help us to talk to you often. Help us to to walk in faith and have a strategy that comes from you. Help us to be prayerfully optimistic in all things in life. And Lord, at the end of each, each day, we pray that we just simply let you be God. Lord, help us to take up our part, do it well. But Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. We don't want to deceive ourselves. Bless us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit, we pray. Thanks for the time this evening, for the blessing of being able to meet with you, with each other, Lord, to worship and praise you. We ask all this in the blessed name of Jesus, our Savior, our King who comes. It's in his name we pray. Amen.